welcome to the Green Majority, a platform for informed environmental dissent. And I am David Hostetter with Stefan Hostetter and Lauren Latour. How are you doing? You were listening on CIUT 89.5 FM, The Sound of Your City, or on a much-appreciated radio syndicate partner, or on the Green Majority podcast. And today, lo and behold, Stefan, we're going to talk about environmental news. What? Yes. And uh, also... Canada's new accountability legislation framework potential doohickey. And uh, Lauren is going to interview Carolyn Bruyette about uh, Quebec's environmental climate plan. Also a doohickey, actually. Didn't realize. Yeah, they're both doohickeys. Fantastic. But first, Indigenous nations across Canada uh, put out a call to action from November 23rd to the 29th in support of the Gidimdan Checkpoint, Tiny House Warriors, 1492 Landback Lane, Genyangahaga Landback Camp, and Protect the Inlet in a continued bid of mutual solidarity and resistance to our ongoing colonial machine in an effort to reclaim indigenous sovereignty over ancestral lands and protect the non-human world from new fossil fuel infrastructure and industrial resource extraction. Two of these groups, Tiny House Warriors and Protect the Inlet, are explicitly fighting the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, which is still owned by the Canadian public, after being purchased from Kinder Morgan two and a half years ago by the Trudeau government to ensure that it would be built and finally bring our crude to Asian markets. We are currently building it, and one man in Edmonton was killed trying to build it in October. The left-leaning think tank Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives recently put out a report that the project does not make economic sense because people in Asia are not going to pay very much money for our crude, but those in support of the pipeline are now arguing that at least having the option to sell the stuff in Asia would ensure that people in the U.S. would pay the highest reasonable price for it. More significantly, the Canadian energy regulator has just come out with a report saying that both the Trans Mountain Expansion and the Keystone XL pipelines will be superfluous if Canada is to act uh, even minimally toward curbing the climate crisis. A recent survey from Petro LMI, meanwhile, showed that two-thirds of oil and gas companies in Canada cut labor costs this year due to the pandemic. The climate crisis is, of course, more and more in our faces every year, as this year's Atlantic hurricane season brought the highest number of major storms ever, and the strongest storm on record to ever hit Somalia made landfall on the 22nd of November. The storm brought over a year's worth of rain in two days after rapidly intensifying, which is what an increasing number of storms are doing as the globe heats up. NASA reports, quote, in 12 hours, the storm's winds intensified from 65 kilometers to 185 kilometers per hour, the largest 12-hour increase for any tropical storm ever recorded in the Indian Ocean. As the climate crisis worsens, it's good to recognize that it is the rich who are precipitating it, as a study recently came out in the journal Global Environmental Change, finding that only 1% of the global population is responsible for 50% of all CO2 coming from commercial flights. In addition to this, the study suggests that people flying privately are each emitting up to 7,500 tons of CO2 every year from their air travel alone. The authors note, quote, Prior to the COVID-19 crisis, global air transport demand was expected to triple between 2020 and 2050. Findings are specifically relevant with regard to the insight that a large share of global aviation emissions is not covered by policy agreements. And finally, this past October, the authors of the 2017 study showing that Exxon knew about climate change since the mid-70s hired people to research it, and then muzzled its own scientists and lied to the public through a 15-year propaganda campaign, came out with a reassessment of those findings and have discovered that they were even more correct than they thought they were, and have shown that Exxon and Mobil, prior to their 1999 merger, were both intentionally lying about climate change being human-caused, serious, and solvable. You gotta love a reassessment that makes you even more right. 
Yeah, that's it's, it's uncommon. And I definitely could go on a extended rant about flying, but I'm going to put my flying rant aside for the day and instead carry forward at least a little bit longer with Exxon because there are sort of two extra pieces of information to note here. The first uh, is that on Wednesday, the day that this show is recorded, the company reported that it was cutting an additional 300 jobs as a part of a more than $100 billion of budget cuts that it has put forward. Which somewhat flies in the face of the oil is our future narrative that for some reason is still being pushed by the Canadian government. And this is perhaps even more underlined by the fact that it was also revealed earlier this week that internal reports from Exxon show that it has cut expectations for future oil prices for each of the next seven years by 11 to 17 percent. So, you know, it's not like some quick bounce back is being expected here. And it's not just Exxon. Uh, Suncor as well, which is Canada's second biggest oil company, said last month that it's cutting its workforce by 15% over the next year and a half. And so putting all of this on the backdrop of the news from the Canadian Energy Regulator that Dave mentioned earlier, you know, which shows that even with an increased output from the oil sands, which they don't expect, we would have excess capacity if the two pipelines that are currently being pushed by the federal liberals are built. You know, the federal liberals right now are of the opinion that both Trans Mountain and Keystone XL must get built. And here comes a report that says, even with the evolving scenario, which aims to follow more recent trends, neither appear to be needed at all. Like maybe you can make an argument that you know it it would supplement some of the rail capacity so they could ship it by pipeline instead of rail if you want to make any argument at all. But what should be also noted is that even this report, which indicates that you actually do not need any more capacity even by twenty thirty five when roughly around where oil peaks in this in this report, this report itself is a much more rosy picture of oil and oil oil futures than is expected from either the International Energy Agency or the oil company BP itself. Both of those have a much sharp, sharper decline of oil predicted than this is being shown. And so, once again, we're left with the question as to why a government that continually says it's committed to reconciliation is willing to trample the rights of indigenous land defenders to build this outdated and unnecessary oil infrastructure. I have a more rant on 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 the liberals in a second, but first to you, Lauren. Yeah, I'll I'll let you get back to that rant fairly quickly. Yeah, I did <laughs> just want to add that like it 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 has already been said, but like with this report that came out from the um from the energy board, which is from what I understand the body that replaced the NEB, I believe. Mm. Um, this this was sort of that body. Um, over the last couple of years, it's come in to replace it. It. All of the scenarios that it account that it that it sort of allows for it only really puts forward two scenarios. Um, under both of them, we don't need increased oil capacity, and both of them are like deeply unambitious. Neither one of them depicts a scenario in which we remain below 1.5. Neither one of them depicts a scenario, from what I understand, that actually even has us meeting our 2030 or 2050 targets. So, like, it's not like this report was put together by a bunch of sort of like tree hugging greenies who want to see us hit zero by 2035. Like, no, this is a deeply unambitious report that doesn't set us or that doesn't sort of like depict us on on a strong trajectory um towards net zero anytime soon and yet even they say that we we have no use for the increased capacity of these pipelines and all of the oil and gas that would be funneling into our into into the local economy here yeah the the like it basically the the this the evolving scenario which is the lower scenario uh, indicates that it's as if it carries on like it is now and, and not even beyond that, just that we're carrying on from what we currently have. And I want to go back very briefly to a story we covered last week uh, in regards to the, the study that the IISD did about Canada, because there were a couple numbers in it, which we sort of, which I didn't, I didn't even fully understand until I reread it this week in conjunction with this conversation, because I was sort of like, all right, Clearly, the Canadian government is in some way betting on oil, but how big is that bet? And I remember from you know earlier reports that 
Canada was dead last in this sort of report in regards to actual supporting oil and gas. And the numbers are astounding. It's like this, this government, the federal liberals right now, is still giving $12.6 billion of support to oil and gas for exploration, production, refining, and transportation. That includes exploration. So this is, includes the idea of doing it more. And the number that got me even more that I, I'm still even baffled by is that it is currently giving 12% more money to support fossil fuels relative to 2014 and 2016. Meaning that the federal liberals under Trudeau right now are giving more money to oil and gas than Harper did, who was in control of that government for half of that time. How do you pretend you are a climate leader when you are funneling money into oil and gas at this rate? I just don't understand. Well, and I feel like we're going to get into that in our next conversation where we talk about Canada's new climate accountability legislation, because again, it feels like, and this isn't to be too critical right out of the gate, but it feels a lot like it's another example of the Liberals saying, hey, we care about climate. Look, we came up with this new climate accountability bill. And then you sort of look behind the curtain and you look at the text a little bit and you're like, is this really all that ambitious though? Or are you just using the right words again? Do you guys just, they have fantastic PR people. They really do. They have, Trudeau had a great Instagram when he first ran and those same PR people are still like doing a great job now because Canada has managed to keep this reputation of a country that is like, oh, they're not that bad. Oh, they're pretty good. Oh, they're better than the Harper years. And it's like, I don't actually know that we are. We make a lot of really good commitments. Like, I mean, when it comes to fossil fuel subsidization, how many years ago did Trudeau commit to phasing out inefficient subsidies at the G20 or G7? I can't quite remember, but it's like, and we have made no realistic steps towards that. And I feel like we talk about that all the time on this show, but it's like, yeah, this is a government that's really, really good at using all of the right words and 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 delivering on none of it. You'll be the moon, I'll be the earth. And when we burst, start over, oh darling, begin again, begin again, begin again. It is um, mercifully looking as though the inane techno-feudalism of the Trump administration is finally going to begin slinking back into the shadows to make way for Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden to properly take power in January, after which he will hopefully not end up rehashing the corporate-friendly neoliberalism that helped create the anger that gave rise to Trump in the first place by enriching the rich and making more people poor. 54 million Americans are now skipping meals as a result of the pandemic, which has made a bad hunger problem worse, and the United States Senate, as it stands, clearly does not care. In regards to the climate, Biden has appointed John Kerry to a special climate envoy role, making Kerry a climate diplomat who will report directly to the president. On the other hand, Biden has brought in Michael McCabe to the EPA, who previously helped the chemical company DuPont fight environmental regulation. And here in the True North Strong and Free, meanwhile, Pretty Boy Trudeau has recently come out with new climate accountability legislation, meant to hold the federal government accountable for making steady progress towards reaching net zero emissions by 2050. The legislation would legally bind future Canadian governments to setting five-year climate targets, the earliest of which would be for 2030. Progress towards these targets will have to be assessed and defended two years prior to every milestone, meaning the first report will be in 2028. If the report finds that the country is not on track to meet the target, new plans will have to be made. Trudeau will need support from one or two of the other parties to pass the new law, and some critics are saying that Trudeau is stupidly and or cunningly exempting his own government from the standard by not setting the first target for 2025, which would mean that, as Nelson Bennett points out for Prince George Matters, if, uh, if his minority hold on power lasts through most of 2023, the Liberals would have to put out a progress report right around election time. John Paul Tasker writes for the CBC, quote, 
the legislation calls for the creation of an outside 15-member advisory board composed of climate experts, scientists, and indigenous representatives, among others, which would provide advice to the minister on setting targets and the best sectoral strategies for achieving net zero. Tasker quotes Green Party leader Annamie Paul as saying, quote, After five years in power and a record of unfulfilled emissions reductions commitments, the government has given us more smoke and mirrors. There is only talk of accountability about a plan that will be developed at some future date. That's not what we expected, and this is not, uh, that is not what we need. Lori Goldstein points out for the Toronto Sun that nothing will happen if the government fails to meet the targets. The government will just have to admit that it has failed and put out more plans. Trudeau said it is the voters who will hold the government accountable. Dale Marshall of Environmental Defense said that we should have independent experts who will regularly assess progress and that there should be mandated immediate government action if Canada is off track. Catherine Abreu of Climate Action Network Canada said that the legislation will, quote, make sure that climate change is no longer treated as a partisan political football in Canada, but that the first milestone should be 2025 and that a new, more ambitious climate law needs to back it up. So there's a lot to be said, I think, about this bill. And but the one that well, the first thing that comes out in almost every response that I've read, which Dave highlighted here as well, is that any type of action that does not that that where their first time you have to report is 20 is 2028 is ludicrous. Most the science has made it clear that we have to be well on our way to action by 2030. And so if by 2028, Canada is like, oopsie it's then we're, it's over the game is cooked like why are we even pretending that you're trying to do this if the first time you have to pour in this is 2028 you know there's yeah there's so much else going on here but i think first and foremost that is playing into i think the most common way that Canadian governments have managed to avoid doing any hard work is always have the first time you have to report on new legislation after the next election. It It is a tried and true method that is consistent no matter what it ha happens. And any legislation that does not have you as your government who's currently in power have to report on it is basically a, a meaningless bet in many ways. You know, not to say that there's not some good things here, um, and you've seen places where some accountability legislation has been effective. Like I'm, I'm somewhat astounded by the success that Britain has had, despite their, despite their completely unreasonable leader. Uh, they managed to still make progress on climate, and so there's clearly advantages advantages of having accountability acts, but they have to have teeth, which this one also does not. Uh, but to you, Lauren. So right now, Canada doesn't doesn't have to start reporting on for this accountability bill until 2028. People are upset it's not starting in 2025. And, and I have heard in some cases, people are like, oh, 2025 is too soon. By the time they could even start working on the report, it won't be for another year, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, I understand that that's soon, but I also understand that like, we're gonna have to start making moves by 2025. So if we're gonna have to start making moves by 2025 and reducing by then anyway, what's the harm in publishing that information? But, but anyway, we'll dig into that more later. Um, before I before I sort of I, I did want to say a bit about why accountability legislation is so important, but before I get to that, David, can I ask you a question? Is Joe Biden's middle name really Robinette? Yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I didn't know if that was that was a joke. That's a that's a lovely middle name. <laughs> Way to go, Joe. Mr. Mr. Biden. Good job. Okay. Getting back to business here. Um yeah, so you kind of touched on it, uh, Stefan, when you were talking about the success that Britain has seen. Uh, so far, there are a number of other countries that we've seen put out accountability policy, and, and, it's, and it's been really successful for them. We've seen it come recently out of like Denmark and New Zealand, but the one that everybody tends to point to is the UK, because they've had accountability policy in place for, for, some, for over 10 years now, since 2008. And what we've seen from Britain, oddly enough, is, is a reduction in emissions by something like 38% from 1990 levels, whereas in the situation of Canada, our emissions have risen by, I, th I think, something uh, something like 30.3% 30 
since since 1999 or since 1990. So um, obviously, accountability policy isn't like the isn't like the holy grail or a silver bullet, but but it does contribute to that country's success, and that's because where. Um, where so many international climate treaties, for instance, like Paris, Paris is great. Paris is a good benchmark. We're also glad we're part of Paris. Paris doesn't, Paris isn't um, legally binding necessarily. Um, there are no legal ramifications for a country that fails to meet their target. So that's why accountability policy and accountability legislation that's, that's enacted by a country is so important because theoretically it would provide some recourse and some legal avenues for a given government to be held accountable should should climate targets be missed um, in, in coming years. Um, but as you said, Stefan, this isn't a climate policy that actually has that worked into it. Um, if you were to if, if you read the bill, it's not especially long, it's not especially jargony. Most people could could probably understand it. Um, you realize that it does say, um, it says it's like the government must report, the government must keep track of this, but nowhere does it say the government must meet this target. Um, so it's accountability policy with no accountability mechanism. And Trudeau says, he's like, oh, well, the accountability mechanism is like voters and voters holding us accountable and voters holding us and voters voting us out. And it's like, well, that's been your accountability mechanism since 1992. And that hasn't served us very well. Also, that's a huge cop out and that's really annoying. Like it's, it's, it, yes, it is technically my job to hold you accountable. I do believe that from like a, a, dem, a, a well-functioning democracy standpoint. But when you specifically said you're putting out policy around climate accountability that has no climate accountability mechanisms within it, really, when it comes down to it from a legal standpoint, it's incredibly frustrating and incredibly disingenuous. And that's just one of the ways in which this, this, this bill for all its good intentions, falls really short. So we have the fact that it doesn't start reporting until until near the end of this decade. Um, we have like really no legal teeth here, no recourse for anyone being held truly, I'm using this word again, accountable. Um, and then we also have things like it doesn't, it, it doesn't really mention um, any sort of responsibility to, to reflect UNDRIP, uh, the, the United, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, there, there are no references made to uh, the workforce or a just transition that way. Um, and there's also one of the biggest things that we're seeing sort of coming out of like the, the climate community, a really big sort of disappointment here is the lack of, of, of carbon budgets here. Um, and the reason carbon budgets are so important, in addition to uh, a target. Say your target, we know it's zero by 2050. The reason carbon budgets are so important on the path to getting to that zero by 2050 um, is for the same reason that like, for instance, if I need to get my credit card debt or my, or my student debt down to zero by whatever X year, it's really hard for me to know how to go about doing that or map out a path for myself if I don't know how much money is in my bank account in the first place. You need to sort of like know how much room you have to work with in order to adequately backcast and plan to get yourself there. I hope that was a useful analogy. Um, no, so yeah, yeah sure. it's, it, w people were so excited to see this happen because especially folks in the climate community have been pushing for a policy like this for, some, for, for over 10 years at this point. It's been a long time coming. And for it to be this week, is quite disappointing. Um, where hope does lie, like you said, is in is in the legislative process. This obviously still has to go to the House for voting and discussion and debate. And and because we are in a minority government, because the power is held by the bloc and the NDP right now, it does allow for some for some movement here and some amendments and some of those amendments to actually holds hold some weight to them and actually enact something meaningful here. Um, so yeah, be thankful we're in a minority government right now. <laughs> yeah, which I feel like is the only thing I've said for like two years. The and, and that I would be it'd be it'd be amazing if that happens. I I I'd be curious to, like I'd be curious to know like so much of what the liberals do feels like a game of half smoke and mirrors. In that I'm I'm like do you put something weak so that you can then give up three things that you're happy to give up and then pass a bill and it's like look we passed it bipartisanly so now we're gonna with these new laws that ha that in place. A a suggestion I have if they're looking for an accountability mechanism is is to just have you know the. Uh, Basically, if you don't make it, then the carb the price of carbon should should be just increased. That's the like if you if you don't if you're not on pace making it, then the price of carbon goes up by ten by ten dollars the next year. Uh, you know, pretty simple. 
and not like a um, that would cause a huge ramification of problems, but would maybe make you actually care. Uh, my other idea was that you would just give money to uh, to uh, to technology that would be pulled out of the RCMP and military's budget. But I figured that one would be even maybe even less popular than my than the than, the, than CO two price and carbon idea. So, but anyways, like any accountability measure would be great. So, and I'm like I'm eagerly awaiting another one. The the other thing I just to, on something you mentioned uh, earlier is that I am I'm very hard pressed to give the liberals sort of the idea of like oh we wouldn't be able to do this for another X amount of years when they were in power for four years like yeah if you just got elected then sure I get it you take some time to do this work I understand but you spent four years with Harper's standards doing nothing (laughs) and now you've come out with a plan okay but you cannot then say you don't have enough time because you chose to take this long in the first place. <laughs> like it just does it doesn't doesn't match reality in any real way. I, I I'm I'm left with sort of like this, you know, like if you want someone to give you something, you know, like like give you the cut to cut you some slack, then you have to have been acting at a normal speed from the first place. And, and and that's not what we're seeing. No, exactly. Yeah, one of one of the other areas we're sort of seeing a bit of um, disappointment around this is in that is in the um, the independent advisory body that's proposed here. Um, I I can't remember. Um, somebody has said that it's that it's going to be fifteen people, and that's great. Um, in in all the sort of uh, recommendations I've I've seen for um, accountability legislation, people are always saying we need an independent. Um, expert advisory body, not just to advise on on the targets and what they should be, but like every step along the way, they need to be there. They need to be sort of enshrined as decision makers in this process. And and where the disappointment lies in, the, in is that this doesn't quite go that far. I think I think what it references specifically within the legislation is this this independent advisory body will um will will be there to advise on setting those sort of specific targets to get to 2050. So those, those five-year targets, which is, which is good, but again, doesn't, doesn't really push their role as far as we want it to be in terms of being an independent body unelected of, of comprised of like science and industry experts um, who, who really know and live and breathe this information and, and are able to sort of really set us on the right track from a, from a quote unquote, from a scientific standpoint. Um, so it's kind of dis- disappointing that they're not sort of, um, their mandate isn't a little bit stronger, but something you mentioned before, before we sort of hit record on this, Stefan, is that um, there's a little bit of concern about who will actually comprise this advisory body because it's not written down explicitly within the legislation at this point, um, who, it, who, who will actually be, be sitting on this committee. And, and it's, a point of concern for for a lot of people, I think. Yeah, well, especially because today, in the first day of debate, again, we record this on Wednesday, they, conservatives basically called out and said that they wanted members of oil and gas sector to be included on the advisory panel, which sort of, given the fact that earlier in this, pro, in, in this conversation, we discussed the fact that mo- many oil and gas companies actively vote, tried to hide information about climate change from the public does not seem to be like a very great idea to me. You know, just just my take. The, the one last thing I do want to I, I want to call out on this is that the uh, 350.org has pointed this out in their calls in response, which is that the one thing that's missing also from this is is any attempts to align it with UNDRIP and and aim to work uh, more effectively and to ensure that Indigenous nations can be actual partners in this work. You know, it, it, it sort of says that the finance and environment ministries should be a part of the work, but sort of does, does not include the fact that Indigenous nations obviously are will play an important role in this work as well and, and should be should see the benefits of climate action, given that they are bearing the brunt of climate inaction currently. Places where where people are a little bit disappointed and are looking for something potentially a little bit more ambitious um, is in the uh the sort of the way targets are laid out here, there was there was a call initially for some sort of subnational carbon budget or subnational targets to be developed as well, um, because Canada is a 
federation. So that means provinces bear a good deal of responsibility and, and sectors uh, bear a good deal of responsibility. And, and I think what people were hoping for is for this accountability legislation to make that explicit. Um, obviously, that's a, that's a really uh, tall order to fill because when you're sort of playing with jurisdiction, things inevitably get messy and things get prickly. But it will be necessary for us to know explicitly how much how much carbon a given province or a given sector has to burn over the next forty years. Um, so that's an, that's a, that's one more area in which in which this the bill as it currently stands, without any amendments at this point, has fallen a little bit short. Is is that there is no mention of subnational um, budgets or targets? I have heard that apparently there is some sort of sectoral target budget policy maybe coming down the pike, but that is literally just like, that is hearsay. That is a rumor that I heard. So I, I don't know how verifiable that is, but, um, but yeah, I guess when it comes down to it, it's really great to see, uh, uh, an act with accountability in the title. It's a little bit disappointing that, that this hasn't delivered a little bit more. It's like, it's great that you finally got your assignment in, but I can only give you a D kind of thing. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, we're, we're very, very sorry. No, like, I, I, I agree. And I think that, again, we're, we're back to the hope that what gets passed is stronger than than what we see. And if not, uh, then, you know, then just like the progressives are be are, are gearing up to fight the Biden administration, uh, those of us here in Canada get to do the same with 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 Trudeau. Twenty five bucks, mama paid Joe here. Sit on the porch here, do it on the stairs. Put your hair out and you're gonna get it twisted. That's many nights. Good afternoon, Green Majority listeners. Uh, you are hearing the voice of Lauren Latour. I'm normally a contributor to the show, but today I'm conducting an interview. I'm joined here today by Caroline Pruyette, uh, who is the policy analyst and domestic campaigns in Frank or er, domestic. I always get your title wrong. <laughs> your policy <laughs> analyst um, for domestic campaigns in francophone communities with Climate Action Network Canada. And uh, full disclosure, listeners, uh, Cajo and I are colleagues, so I'm a little bit biased in selecting her to come on the show. But I picked her not because she's my colleague, but because she's an expert and incredibly experienced and well-versed in the topic we're covering today with our conversation. Um, today, we're going to be talking about uh, Quebec's 2020 plan for a green economy and all that it sort of represents for that province and uh, the ramifications and consequences and good things and bad things that come along with this plan. So thank you so much for joining us today, Carol. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Lauren. Happy to join. Awesome. All right. So we are going to dive right in. Um, so this plan came out a couple weeks ago, but it's not something we've had time to cover on the show yet. So if you could sort of give our listeners a bit of a breakdown of the plan, uh, what the plan's setting out to do, how it proposes to go about doing it, um, I would really, really appreciate it. Yeah, sure. Um, so this is Quebec's climate plan for years 2020 to 2030. Um, what it sets out to do is to plan for the first five years, um, so 2021 to 2026, um, in terms of reaching Quebec's current climate target, which is a reduction in emissions of 37.5% below 1990. Um, levels. So as I said, it only covers the first five years of this 10-year period. Um, and so the plan only proposes 42% uh, in reductions with all the, when you add up all the measures in it. So that was something that, you know, was a bit disappointing. We're supposed to plan for the full 10 years ahead. Um, there are four main axes to the plan uh, within which the total $6.7 billion um, was allocated to. So the first one is mitigation. The big focus is on electrifying transport, um, mostly through incentives. Um, and the big measure that um, was lauded was the 2035 ban on new gasoline-powered vehicle sales. Um, in the mitigation measures as well, there um, are reductions for the building sector, um, uh, Hydro-Quebec and Energie, our gas company, are supposed to work together to um, convert buildings to buy energy. 
Um, and there will also be in parallel uh, lots of spending, almost 16 billion um, into Quebec's infrastructure plan for big public transit projects. So that's the mitigation part. The second part is the green economy focus. So that's where the government plans to invest in industrial sectors that it wants to position Quebec as a leader um, in the future green economy. So that's uh, green hydrogen production, bioenergy and batteries, including the recycling of batteries. The third sector is adaptation and that's mainly uh, funding targeted um, through Quebec communities and a special attention uh, with regard to northern communities. Um, these, act, these are actions aimed at health protection, the maintenance of quality of life and safety. And finally, the fourth one is creating a favorable uh, environment for the transition. So it's about mobilizing the public um, and increasing participation in this, in this transition that we have to do. Um, so there's money targeted towards indigenous communities, climate action, um, mobilization and communication strategies, as well as, and this is an important part of Quebec's climate action, multilateral action. Um, Quebec has indeed been once a, one of the first federate states to partake in um, uh, international climate finance. So it, it keeps, it reiterates it com its commitment in that regard in the plan. So that's high level. Um, what was announced last week. Awesome. That was exhaustive. Thank you so much for going over that with us. Um, before I move on to my next question, I did just want to ask, do we know when the second half of that plan is coming out, if this only covers the first 42% or something? Yeah. So, and that's really one good thing about the plan that I think we need to focus on is the fact that every year the government is going to revise and assess its progress and announce the um, what is called the PMO so the implementation plan in English for the next five years so it's kind of a rolling moving plan that doesn't mean we're not disappointed that you know there's 58 percent of emissions <laughs> reductions that are simply missing of course um does that sort of mean then if it's sort of being reevaluated on a rolling basis that there is sort of potentially room to really ratchet up ambition if Quebec feels that it's slipping down well that's what groups are are hoping for um, something that might be useful for listeners to know is that before the plan was announced, the government um, adopted a law on climate governance. Um, this law is not really a climate accountability mechanism, but what it does say is that, the, um, that Quebec targets need to be revised at least every five years um, and that the current target is um, a minimum. So, we're, we're definitely hoping, uh, especially as uh, countries are gearing up towards nationally determined contributions, that Quebec will, you know, um, find this opportunity to um, present a target that is more representative of its fair share in the global uh, mitigation effort. Okay. All right. Thanks for, thanks for answering that for me. Um, so how does this provincial plan kind of fit in with Canada's currently existing federal climate policy package, I guess? That is a great and very complex question. Um, as, as, as you and I know, Lauren, um, Canadian federalism is very complicated and envi the environment is a shared jurisdiction within the Canadian um, constitution. So um, I think we should see this plan as kind of Quebec doing a bit of its own thing. One thing that is very clear um, in the plan when you read it is that um, it, it relies on federal funding for a number of initiatives, including some of its transit projects, um, electrification initiatives, and etc. Um, but there's definitely an area that at some point in the next few years, um, the Quebec climate policy and the federal climate policy will, um, how can I say this, that, that we might need to um, keep a close eye on, on their interactions, and that's carbon pricing. So Quebec has a cap and trade system that covers almost 90% of, uh, of its economy, of the sectors of its economy. And the current price um, through which carbon uh, credits are traded is about $18. Um, so as the federal backstop, the federal price on carbon keeps increasing um, 
at some point, you know, there might be some inequities between the, the, the federal price on carbon and the Quebec price on carbon. So there's a big question in terms of how we harmonize these two systems. Okay, that was perfect. Thank you. Um, something we were talking about just before we hit record is that this title, the 2030 Plan for a Green Economy, at least as it, as it translates into English, wasn't always the title for this legislation. Um, can you tell us how it how it's shifted over time and why you think that might be? Yeah, so it started uh, out as a plan for electrification and climate cha- change. And already in that title, you know, there was a hint that electrification was really this government's favored strategy in terms of, of climate action. And, you know, from an outside perspective, yes, ele- electrification is important and in an important opportunity for Quebec because we have a big hydro surplus and our energy sector is already pretty much emissions free. Um, so already, you know, you had that focus on electrification and then it changed and became a plan for a green economy, which kind of um, signaled even more that the government was seeing this plan as an opportunity for economic development, which is not necessarily a bad thing. We know that Um, action on climate change actually affords us huge opportunities to transition and diversify our economies in the future and create uh, sustainable jobs. And that's great. But really what this plan should focus on is decarbonizing our economy not necessarily um, creating economic growth. Um, So, you know, as, as much as the focus is on green economy, that's okay, but maybe too much is a little um, this only focuses maybe a little too much. Yeah, I sort of hadn't processed until you said it that, that the it is interesting that the term climate change isn't actually present in the title at all. Um, but but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've been talking a lot about transportation. And, um, and like you'd said when you sort of initially introduced us to the legislation, more than half of the $6.7 billion budgeted for the plan, so about like $3.6 billion, will be invested in the transportation sector for um, uh, subsidies for individuals to encourage them to like purchase electric cars and, and all that fun stuff. Um, in your opinion, does the plan place maybe too much emphasis on electric vehicles? Um, or do you think it's pot- potentially a really good direction to go in? Um, because, for instance, uh, uh, Quebec Solidaire, the second opposition party in Quebec, has sort of implied that the government isn't doing enough to discourage private vehicle use with the introduction of this bill. So would love your thoughts on that. Yeah, great point. So... Definitely, I think the focus on the transport sector is 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 important and warranted, right? Um, in Quebec, because um, almost all of our energy sector is uh, um, is through um, renewable energy, hydroelectricity, um, our emissions from the uh, transport sector are a lot higher than in the rest of Canada. So they account for 43% of, of the province's emissions. So it's really important that we focus on that sector. And it's a very hard sector to decarbonize. But electrification is one of the things we can do to decarbonize that sector. But it's definitely not the first one. And it's not it's not the only one. And it's not the first one we should, we should be doing. So in Quebec, within the Quebec uh, climate community, there's a very um, strong consensus around a three-prong approach for decarbonizing the transport sector. And that's first, avoid. So reducing the, the amount of kilometers traveled by, by folks. So that's through like how we plan, how we build our cities and our communities. Um, to ensure that, you know, we can actually move um, by foot and we don't have to take our car all the time. The second one is a shift. So shift um, uh, traveling through uh, other modes of transportation, whether it's transit or um, urban mobility or active mobility. And then the last one is improve. So for the vehicles that are left on the road, once you've done these first two steps, then those are the, the emissions that you, you want to electrify, the, the vehicles that you'd want to electrify. So that, that strategy makes more sense, for instance, in more rural areas um, or in long-distance cargo 
Um, but it's definitely not the only thing we should do and definitely not through only um, incentives for consumers, right? Because you end up spending a lot of um, taxpayers' money um, for people to buy individual cars. Um, so you can definitely ask the question, could this money be um, invested more equitably in transit solutions that actually um, affect the lives of, of more people than a solo vehicle? Right. Of course. Yeah. I feel like I've heard you say when talking about this plan that there's a lot of carrots, but not a lot of sticks from a, from a policy development standpoint. So yeah, yeah. sort of an interesting tactic they've chosen there. Um, and maybe Lauren, if, if I can maybe just say one thing on that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the Quebec government gives a subsidy for, for, to incentivize uh, folks to buy electric cars, right? But what groups have been asking is not only like paying people to buy electric cars, but also penalizing people who buy um, high polluting vehicles like light duty trucks. And, and, and because the fact is that, you know, the size of our vehicles in Quebec over time has been increasing and the number of cars, the num like the number of cars per capita has been increasing faster <laughs> than the population uh, increase rate, right? So cars reproduce faster than, than uh, people in Quebec. So we really have to kind of ensure that we do have some sticks um, in order for our, our car um, our car pool to stop growing as fast. Yeah, that sort of note that the population of vehicles is growing faster than the population of humans in, in Quebec is <laughs> quite, quite astounding. Um, so overall, how has this plan been received by, I'll, I'll call it like the climate community? Yeah. Well, overall, there's consensus within Quebec groups that this plan is insufficient, um, not only because it doesn't propose measures that fully reach 100% of our current target, which, by the way, as I said earlier, is, is insufficient as well. It doesn't represent Quebec's fair share of the global effort, but also because there's this overemphasis on electrification and the fact they're just carrots, no sticks, which is going to be really costly for the taxpayers uh, in the long run. Of course. So um, kind of coming, kind of wrapping up our segment here, but uh, what do you think either you can focus on either one? Um, what either do you think does this policy do really well or what's a specific area that you think could use some real improvement or was potentially left out altogether? Hmm, that's a good question. And I think one thing that this, that the government did really well for this plan is how it consulted civil society, the business sector, labor groups, right? So at least starting um, more than a year ago, um, it kind of brought together different actors from different sectors of society to work together and propose measures to the government in order to feed them um, for this plan. Um, but however, you know, these groups actually did a great job. They proposed really ambitious stuff. And, you know, you had all the business actors who we might think as more conservative around the table, but their government really fell short of implementing all that was proposed. So as much as that was a really good exercise in consultation and consensus building, the government kind of is less ambitious than the society is current, has consensus to go. So moving forward, you know, we have this really strong con social consensus for climate action. And you saw it in the reactions coming not only from Engels, but from the business community and from labor, the different labor groups. Um, so that consensus is really uh, solid and the government really needs to get up to speed with its society. So the good thing is we have, you know, yearly revisions that we can build on, um, but definitely it needs to get up to speed with where Quebec is at in terms of ambition. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's, a, I don't know, sort of a common theme we see all across the country is that, is that we consistently have uh, an electorate and a citizenry that's calling for really ambitious policy that's pretty united behind that call. I mean, like we saw that in the federal election last year as well, like something like 63 or 65% of voters were voting for parties with strong climate policies. And we just don't necessarily see that ambition adequately reflected 
by governance. Um, so it's that's not just a problem that plagues Quebec, obviously. Um, last question. I feel like you've kind of answered this in other ways, but just to sum up, does this policy, understanding it's only the first 42%, does it put us on track for sort of like zero by 2050, keeping warming under 1.5 C? I would say it's a step in the right direction, but it's nowhere near the ambition we we um, we need. And one thing I would I would say is that you know when he was presenting the plan, the premier kept saying, you know, this is a really great plan in North America. It's more than other Canadian provinces are doing, and he specifically compared this plan to what Alberta and Texas are doing. Um, and, you know, the answer to this is to say, well, you know, Quebec actually already has a almost completely decarbonized energy sector. We have a population that is really mobilized and um, united in its demand. So we can't only compare ourselves to, you know, the worst, the laggards. Um, and if we truly want to be a climate leader, we need to follow the science and um, present a plan that not only reaches our current target, but surpasses it um, and does its fair share of the global effort to respect a, a, a mean increase of 1.5 degrees. Sorry, that was a long sentence. No, that was perfect. That was a fantastic <laughs> ending. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Carol, for, for sitting with us today and, and going through this pretty extensive uh, policy set with us. I really, really appreciate your time. Um, again, listeners, this has been Caroline Bruyette with uh, Climate Action Network Canada breaking down Quebec's 2030 plan for a green economy with us. So thank you so much for your time, Carol. We'll, um, we'll have to have you back soon to chat with us about, about all other kinds of climate policy. You're, you're an expert and we are so lucky to have you. So thanks so much. Thanks so much, Lauren.